information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. I'm joined today by Dr. Marusa Pavla, a content expert in persons with visually induced dizziness. I'm Puneet Daliwal, and your host, uh, a physical therapist who has worked in clinical practice for over 10 years. Dr. Pavla is a senior lecturer of physiotherapy at King's College London. She obtained her PhD from Imperial College London. She has published numerous articles as well as book chapters and has been invited to present her work at various NHS physiotherapy, neurology, and audiology departments, teaching seminars, and at many national and international conferences. Dr. Pavlo is a past chairman of the Association of Chartered Physiotherapists interested in vestibular rehabilitation and currently a member of the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, the International Society for Posture and Gait Research, and is an elected member of the International Baroness Society. Thank you and welcome to the show, Dr. Pavlo. Thank you for having me. So um, our discussion about visually induced dizziness, um, what actually is visually induced dizziness? Visually induced dizziness is a term that's used to define dizziness, whether it's a swimminess or giddiness or wooziness, depending on how patients describe it, and or unsteadiness that is triggered by a complex, distorted, large field moving visual stimulus or the relative motion of the visual surround associated with body movement. People will often describe that they feel their symptoms are provoked or exacerbated in environments with uh, visual motion, so crowds or supermarkets. They'll also find it challenging scrolling on the computer screen or watching movies that uh, pan the movement or have fast-moving scenes. And those are very uh, typical symptoms in people with visual-induced dizziness. The visual-induced dizziness term is a term that was determined in 2009 by the Committee for the Classification of Vestibular Disorders of the Barony Society, whereby mm-hmm. they defined key vestibular symptoms as a basis for subsequent classification of specific vestibular disorders. And at that point, the terms that were commonly used, like visual vertigo, came under this term of visual induced dizziness. Right. So uh, in the past, uh, Dr. Pavlo, uh, a lot of terminology has been used also for visually induced dizziness, like visual vertigo, space and motion discomfort, uh, or uh, motor disorientation syndrome. So what is the current terminology now, like between colleagues, what is the best thing to use? Uh, Can we still interchange these words, or it's best to use visually induced dizziness? You will still see visual vertigo used. I won't. I haven't seen as much of the other terminology, although there's a paper by uh, Stabatol in 2015 for the classification of PPPD, whereby yeah. they separated out spatial motion discomfort and visual vertigo, uh, whereby mm-hmm. if you look at that um, paper, you will see that they will, in a table, they have uh, described both as SMD, spatial motion discomfort, and visual vertigo, they use those terms to separate them out in that paper. Uh, the provocative factors are situation provoked, but nice. uh, in terms of physical exam and the laboratory findings with spatial discomfort, in previous work they found a, a dependence on somatosensory cues on posturography, 
whereas in vestibular right. uh, visual vertigo, it's associated with uh, central or peripheral vestibular deficits. Both of them may be long-standing. Right. But the general terminology for these symptoms uh, that are believed to be due to an over-reliance on visual dependency is visual-induced dizziness. Right. Um, what is, are the usual causes for visually induced dizziness? It's believed that it's due to visual dependency or an over-reliance on visual cues for perceptual and postural orientation. This is supported by studies showing increased visual cortical excitability and decreased uh, vestibular cortex connectivity in persons with vestibular dysfunction. And there's been some mm -hmm. work in migraineurs. Similarly, in, in persons with concussion, there's an increased uh, motion, coherent motion thresholds been noted, indicating uh, damage to pathways that are directly involved in visual motion processing. And we see that increased visual dependence in people with concussion as well. It's believed that this might result from a deficiency in central or sensory rating such that the visual weight remains higher than normal. And that's mm -hmm. what it's believed to be due to. Right. And and like you mentioned about PPPPD, do you, have you noticed that there's any predisposal to like certain conditions? I mean, you mentioned concussion, psychiatric or or secondary to uh, sequelae to a certain event in in life. Visual induced dizziness is associated with increased anxiety, but we don't have an indication at the moment that it's it's caused by anxiety. Right. Okay, so there's no correct correlation between the two. There's, a, there's an association between them that people with visual induced dizziness uh, may experience higher anxiety. There's also uh, more recent literature that's come out showing that predictive outcome from an acute vestibular neuritis is having high visual dependency and anxiety at baseline. Oh yeah. Okay. But it's it you can't. It's difficult to say that the cause of it is the anxiety. It's just that there's an association between it. Right, and in, right. in clinical practice, I haven't necessarily uh, seen that a, a consistently higher anxiety in people with visual-induced dizziness compared to, for example, patients that don't have visual-induced dizziness. And and how how would you say, like, in, in, in this group of people, if there's an underlying cause of anxiety, I mean, a majority of the visual symptoms and vestibular symptoms do provoke anxiety for a lot of our patients, but if there's an underlying factor, too, is, uh, do, uh, is there a gradation for visually induced dizziness, like people who will be more anxious or will, will, may suffer from any other psychiatric problems like depression? Do you, have you ever seen in practice or is there any research to say that they will have a higher end of visual-induced dizziness as compared to someone who doesn't have it but probably had an acute uh, vestibular neuritis and they had, like, mild? Is, is there, like, a gradation between the two? Uh, there's not a clear gradation. We know mm -hmm. that secondary depression is common in people with vestibular disorders, what can right. occur in people with vestibular disorders. We know that anxiety is common in people with vestibular disorders, regardless of whether they have visual-induced dizziness or not. What we often find is that as people's symptoms improve, not only their visual-induced symptoms, but their uh, other symptoms associated with their vestibular disorder improve, their anxiety improves as well right. as a secondary depression. However, if someone has clinical depression identified on a particular scale with a particular assessment, 
or has significant anxiety, uh, then it would be beneficial to liaise with the uh, multidisciplinary team in terms of having uh, some counseling or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or mm-hmm. uh, seeing someone specialist in terms of addressing that as well at the same time. Right. So now that we are getting close to like a multidisciplinary team, how do we identify um, this group of patients in terms of anything specific when uh, the patient walks into the clinic, specific questionnaires or any tests that need to be performed for patient history? One of the best ways to kind of identify these symptoms is asking the patient. Patients often, uh, what we found when we were uh, doing a study, and this is way back in 2006, where we were specifically looking at uh, visual-induced dizziness uh, at that time, referred to as visual vertigo, in clinic, and we compared those who had those symptoms and who didn't, we found that a questionnaire was very uh, able to identify those patients consistently. Postrography did not. And patient history, asking the patients about their symptoms and specifically asking them about how they feel in different environments will take, uh, you'll get these symptoms from them. They will discuss it and they will uh, will mention it. And the questionnaire will allow uh, the clinician to be able to gauge the severity of the symptoms and the frequency of them. Right. And any um, any any best test that um, that you recommend that um, this should be a part of like um, patient history itself, other than like specific questionnaires and uh, are like you know how would majority of the patients who are coming for visually induced dizziness any kind of movement is provoking them a lot and a lot of times the symptoms get so aggravated. So instead of making them so highly provoked during the session? Are there like few picked, hand-picked tests that you as a, as a clinician and as an expert would recommend it to some, some, of the, some of the colleagues in the field that, you know, these are the few things that one should do and that will help us not provoke their dizziness too much, but at the same time also allow us to test them um, well? Do you there's, recommend there's one, any, any tests? There's mm-hmm. two aspects. So one is kind of your over uh, your overall assessment right. and your outcome measures, and then there's your right. physiotherapy assessment, which right. is where you're looking at the specific uh, movements that trigger their symptoms, not just visual motion, but head movements, body movements, eye movements, and you're trying to identify the appropriate exercises to begin them with. So in terms of the assessment, now there is uh, the rod and frame tests or the subjective visual vertical bucket test will not differentiate the person with visual-induced dizziness. Right. So you can do it as a clinical test, but there's such huge variability even in the healthy population for right. that test that it's not really a good uh, test to determine if someone has visual-induced dizziness or not. Right. There is the laptop-based version. It's not commercially available. It, uh, it was developed by uh, Professor Bronstein's team at Imperial College London to have a moving rod and disc on a laptop and with a cone that patients are blocking out peripheral vision and Mm -hmm. patients are asked to set the line to vertical on the computer screen, on the laptop screen, when the disc on the screen is stationary and while it's moving clockwise 30 degrees or counterclockwise 30 degrees. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not a commercially available tool. 
Mm. There are the questionnaire though, and asking the patient is sufficient. And okay. we use the situational characteristics questionnaire. Right. Um, it can be improved on, but it is mm-hmm. a test that will allow you to determine if someone has visual induced dizziness. Right, right. We like we have the more major tests, right? Yes, so, and we uh, have the pediatric uh, one as well. But in terms of okay. the physiotherapy assessment, when we're looking at them at baseline, unless what I would always do in clinic is I will test their movement and their eye movements in VOR and see if there's gaze instability, symptoms provoked by uh, cicades, smooth pursuit, sitting, standing, Mm -hmm. walking. I wouldn't actually assess exposure to visual motion, particularly in a person with migraine at baseline. I have their questionnaires. I have the patient telling me when I ask them about these symptoms, unless someone had no other symptoms on anything else, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. start their treatment with visual-induced dizziness. And it's mm-hmm. often too intense to look right. at visual motion at the baseline. I agree so what on that. About, uh, being tested, well, all our patients, regardless of whether they have visual-induced dizziness or not, uh, movements will trigger some level of symptoms. Right. And we always have right. to gauge what is acceptable and how what far is- to allow those symptoms to be provoked. Uh, mm-hmm. That's different from assessing for visual-induced dizziness, and it, it doesn't differentiate in some of visual-induced dizziness or not. Uh, right. The visual-induced mm-hmm. dizziness patient will be worse when you expose mm-hmm. them to those visual motion cues. Right. That They're is not necessarily know. worse than anyone mm-hmm. else with head movements. Right, right. Now, now, have you, uh, like during clinical examination, would there be any specific... I mean, these patients are extremely dizzy, like you say. And um, would there be certain red flags that would require a referral of the patient um, outside of practice, other than like having um, any psychiatric problems, but any anything specific that would be like, oh, this is this sounds like central, so probably a neurologist needs to see it. Have you seen any research or in practice any anything in specific? Uh, it would be more the way they describe it. Um, not say red flags from the visual induced dizziness uh, itself, but on your right. assessment, if you're looking at eye movement uh, and there's anything that you're, you're seeing in terms of their nystagmus that indicates central nystagmus, I would refer onwards, but not specifically for visual induced dizziness. Right. Although no. our central patients may also have it as well. Right. Now, um, I have had the opportunity to treat such patients, and uh, often the first question is, do you think I'll be better? And uh, my same question goes to you. Can they be treated, and can they be treated well? Yes, they can. And I, you said about them being very dizzy. They're no more dizzy than other mm-hmm. patients. What they are more dizzy in is those visual environments. Right. So it's, it's specific. The patients with visual-induced dizziness, the visual-induced dizziness per se refers to right. how they feel in those in those environments or with right. explosion visual motion stimuli. Right. Uh, they're not generally more dizzy on a baseline level if they're mm-hmm. not specifically being exposed to that. Right. And now there's um, for patients. I I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Say that one more time, Dr. Paolo. It's not, uh, it's, there's that variability we see in all our patients that some will be more right. dizzy and some will be more unsteady. Some will be both. Right. Some will be less dizzy and will have more mild symptoms, where whatever that dizziness uh, encompasses to them. It's not right. necessarily that baseline 
is not necessarily worse for visual induced dizziness, uh, persons with visual induced dizziness, unless you're exposing them to those environments or situations that trigger their symptoms. Now, it's, um, it, it, it's in your paper that um, vestibular rehab plays a role. However, a combination of optokinetic stimulation and vestibular rehab is found to be more successful. What is optokinetic stimulation? Yeah, optokinetic stimulation is uh, exposure to some form of visual motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a definition for optic flow, which is a continual change of images on the retina that occurs with movement of the visual environment right. and provides important afferent information for control of posture and gait speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, optic flow in the form of these visual motion exercises is prescribed to people with visual induced dizziness. And right. We can use optic connect stimulation is visual motion. Right. And that visual motion, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That visual motion yes, can vary in terms of the, what type of stimulation it is. Okay. Uh, is there any evidence to support its treatment? Yes, there is. There's uh, strong evidence to support its treatment. Um, there's our papers. There's a, a pilot study we did with vestibular mm-hmm. rehabilitation or moderate strength mm-hmm. uh, right. evidence to support its uh, treatment. We also started did a study with virtual reality. It was a very small study, but we showed that those patients' uh, visual-induced dizziness symptoms improved in four weeks with exposure once a week to the virtual surround. This was very different to the results that were obtained by um, Professor Whitney's group in Pittsburgh. And we we discussed this and uh, hypothesized that might be due to the types of activities they were doing in the surround in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, head movement uh, at uh, Pittsburgh, they were on a treadmill. Us, they were free walking within the visual surround, within the cave, right. which uh, influenced the, the differences. Uh, it, it could be the frequency or how often the treatments were, but there isn't that consistency in terms of improvements in virtual reality. We have one paper showing it works. We have one paper, it, so it, there's no change compared to just customized vestibular rehab. Right. But with the uh, optokinetic stimulation, we have seen that consistent mm-hmm. change. Now, uh, is there are there any different types of optokinetic stimulus? Like you already mentioned, uh, virtual reality. Um, any any low technology methods or um, anything else that you would like to specify? Like I know about disc ball and the optokinetic drum or the disc. Um, uh, is there any superiority to choose one over the other? At the moment, no. Uh, we are currently uh, putting in effort for a study to look at low-tech methods of virtual reality and low-tech methods of optokinetic simulation like YouTube videos. Right. So the, there, are the, there is a disco ball, which can be a cheap version or can be a, a quite expensive version, like the Boole. Um, there's the optokinetic drum and disc, as you said. There's the uh, virtual reality, which can be low-tech, but we don't have any evidence on what specific stimulation in the low-tech uh, versions of virtual reality would work. We don't, we don't have any um, specific literature to say that you should use these types of scenery or you should just be black and white stripes in, in VR. Um, but it is another technology that uh, can be used. It's just more challenging at home because okay. the visual surround is absent. Uh, so it's about mm-hmm. safety. Um, right. We did have a DVD, but the DVD... Uh, 
the DVD wouldn't allow, we weren't able to uh, go for FDA approval um, in the oh. U.S. But nonetheless, right. the, if you, YouTube is, is a wonderful asset for right. optokinetic right. simulation. Um, and it has lots of uh, optokinetic drum videos as well as in mm -hmm. different directions. And mm -hmm. I find that in clinical practice, although I don't have the research evidence to back it up, I do find in clinical practice using uh, YouTube videos actually works really well. Yeah, it works for me too. I've I've applied it, um, and um, however, the frequency and the duration of treatment, I think, is one of the key factors. It's my upcoming question for you. Um, I have known in my practice that if I uh, intervene in too early, too fast, too soon, um, the progression doesn't seem to be very well. And sometimes you have to let the patient know that you need to slow it down. Uh, how how do you think about that? Yes, it has to come in at the right time. It's not something that comes in from day one. And as you, you mentioned earlier, it's customized vestibular rehabilitation plus that exposure to optokinetic stimulation. Uh, what I tend to, to do in a, in a clinical setting, and it must be, it's important to say that all of our studies that we have done so far have been in persons that had tried vestibular rehabilitation previously. So they'd had some exposure to head movements and eye movements, um, but their symptoms hadn't really improved. When we're seeing patients for the first time and they haven't had that exposure, we, we want them to be more comfortable with eye movements, head movements, their balance, their gait, before we bring in the optokinetic stimulation. It has to be done particularly for those with migraineurs. It has to be done very, very gently to the point where I'll start them with 10 seconds exposure. Right. Uh, so it has to be... What I find most uh, important is that absolutely in no circumstances is it brought in in someone with migraine at baseline. Right. And with other uh, participants, it's about them seeing some improvement in their uh, dizziness of head movement, uh, standing, sitting, walking, uh, eye movement before we, we bring in that optokinetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. Depending on the symptoms provoked, when you assess them with that, is how you will determine the duration. Uh, at no point do I have them doing each one for more than one to two minutes, each kind of uh, video, if you like, uh, mm -hmm. more than one to two minutes maximum. And they're usually build up to that. Uh, and as I said, you might start with 10, 15 seconds and have them build it up in five second increments. Right. It's now, important you know to, sorry, what I find though most important is being very clear in instructions. I've often right. seen patients who have been given videos and when I ask them about how long were they supposed to watch them for, how frequently, what distance from the screen, uh, full screen or not, uh, they said, no, we were just told to find YouTube videos and watch them. That's not good enough. Right. In order for it to work, we need to be really specific. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. I've had um, issues where, like, people are exposed too soon, and they've come to me from from other therapists, and they were exposed too soon, and then the dizziness lasts. Now, have you seen a relapse for these patients? That do they do they fall back into developing? They they improved, and then something else happens, and then do they relapse back to developing visually induced dizziness again? Or once one is treated, um, yes, they're fine. There's always a possibility, we know generally in people with, uh, in persons with vestibular disorders, that um, 
circumstances like a cold or flu or stress or fatigue Mm -hmm. may cause a temporary decompensation. Right. Absolutely. The more robust the compensation is, the less likely that is to happen. Right. It's... I have seen patients who, because they've gone through a very stressful life situation, their symptoms come back. Uh, Mm -hmm. These may be patients who had visually induced dizziness or not, but in those that had visually induced dizziness, uh, often they'll come back and say, my visual symptoms haven't come back. I don't feel worse in supermarkets or crowds. I just have this uh, um, feeling of of dizziness that doesn't become worse in those environments. Um, But can it relapse? Uh, Possibly, particularly in, in someone who may have... Uh, their migraine was well controlled and then it's no longer well controlled. You may find mm-hmm. that those uh, patients may come back with more visual induced symptoms, even though they'd improved, um, but right. not, not as a de facto, not as always. Right. Now, going back to the, uh, the, the exposure for, have you noticed any difference between lighting in the treatment area? Um, I, in my practice, have noticed that um, there are some group of patients who will be like very sensitive to light, excessive light in in the room, and they'll be like, oh, we would prefer like um, dark lighting or distance from the screen. I have had to move them away from the screen and um, screen size, really. If, if I have a bigger computer, they will like provoke a lot more as computer. Do you see that in practice as well, or is there research that uh, supporting that? Um, lighting is what I find in clinical practice is more common in people with migraine. Right. Um, in terms of that light sensitivity, right. not generally in other uh, persons with vestibular disorders. Okay. With regards to the screen size, um, what I, we did our, in our previous work that was published in 2013, we had looked at a full field bull, uh, right. and we looked at a DVD on a, a laptop screen or a 20-inch right. screen, a television right. screen. Um, they both improved. So there was no difference in them having right. the full field stimulation or the, the screen. Uh, but what I find in clinical practice is anything smaller than a normal size iPad is too small. Now, in, in a gist, what would you define as the best practice treatment for visually uh, induced dizziness? It's about uh, assessing it properly, bringing mm-hmm. it in at the right time, uh, and it's mm-hmm. up to each clinician to identify that mm-hmm. and making sure that it's done in a very structured way. It's not blasé, like go find some YouTube videos and watch them. It has to be right. very, very structured, uh, very descriptive in a way mm-hmm. uh, in terms right. of what you're asking the patient to do. And, and that's best practice to me because that's where I see the most problems. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pavel. It was wonderful speaking to you, and it's good news that for all our patients that they're well treated and successfully managed, uh, but in a very structured way. Thank you so much can for just, joining us. Yes, so, uh, I'm sorry. Add, um, sorry. Yes, of course. We 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 talked about vestibular migraine and we uh, touched about concussion. We did find that those with binocular abnormalities, although they're not worse at baseline they may mm-hmm. take longer to improve. So if you are seeing a person who has a binocular visual abnormality, it would be important to discuss with the patient that although their symptoms may improve with regards to visual indecisiveness, it may take longer. Right. Well, it was wonderful speaking to you, Dr. Pavlo. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Right.
Very welcome. And My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.